You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. This summer, I had the opportunity towards the end of the summer to go hiking with my son. So my twin boys that are 19 and my son Hudson that was 12 at the time, Ruth and Macy were off doing some girly stuff, probably shopping or getting their nails done or something. And so it was like, we're going to go do something as, as boys, as men of the family. And so we decided to go on a hike to West Bend State Park uh, down in the Weston area. And uh, we took this West Ridge Trail. My son, Carson, had taken the trail before he'd went out there by himself. He's like, we should go do it. It's a really great trail. So we go out there and do this trail. Now, you know, it's supposed to be an hour. This is typically when our family goes on hikes. Typically, our hikes turn into two or three hour hikes. And by the end, everybody is cursing my name because we just get, even though we're using the All Trails app, we always get off course and it's, it's always my fault. So this was no different, right? It was like, we're going to try some different trails. And so we're, we're walking on this Westridge Trail, and there's some off-road trails that we begin to walk on. And you're sort of working your way up the side of this hill. And you could tell the boys were getting irritated with me a little bit, like, here we go again with Dad. This is frustrating. So we're working our way up through this foliage. And then all of a sudden, we come out of the foliage. This is my first time on the trail. And we come to this lookout. And this is what we see from the lookout. Now, I took a picture of it, but it wasn't quite as pretty as this picture. So I got this one off the internet. But this is... (laughs) This is the view from the outlook on that trail. You can see the Missouri River is running right there. You can see that the uh, Leavenworth, Kansas is just over there as well. And it was a stunning view. So you're walking through all this foliage where you can't see anything but really the trail that's in front of you. And then you come out of this trail and you walk to this lookout and it's like, whoa, let's just take a minute and soak it in. As we are journeying our way through the book of Matthew, we have been walking on a trail that has lots of foliage on it. But today, we're walking out of the foliage to the outlook of Matthew chapter 16. The two and a half years of Jesus' ministry that we have been reading about and even his birth have been leading us to this moment. And this chapter gives us a bird's eye view of where we have come from and where we are going. Matthew 16 can be outlined in this way. Verses one through four, we're going to encounter the unbelief of the religious leaders again. In Matthew 16, five through 12, we're going to get a warning about the religious leaders' teaching. In Matthew 16, 13 through 20, we see this great confession of Jesus as the Messiah. Some would say Matthew 16 and verse 16 is the key verse of Matthew. We went with Matthew 28, 18 through 20, but you could say Matthew 16, 16 is the key verse. 
Then we'll, we'll finish. We'll try to get to verse 20 today. And then the rest, uh, a couple weeks from now, we'll finish this out with 21 through 23. For the first time, Jesus predicts his death, burial, and resurrection. And then we'll end Matthew 16 with the paradox of following Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me today or open them up to Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to do our best to work through verses 1 through 20 today. As we come out of the foliage to this beautiful outlook, this prolific, maybe the most important chapter in the book of Matthew. It begins in this way in verse 1. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test him, and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to, given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So we have these Pharisees and these Sadducees who are coming to Jesus. This group is known as the Sanhedrin. They were a Jewish council that saw, oversaw various parts of the Jewish life. What's interesting about the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that they didn't like each other. They were sort of at odds with each other. The, the Pharisees were the conservative group that held strict observance to the law and to not only the written law, but to the oral law. Their name itself means separated ones. They were the legalist of the day. So if you hear the term Pharisees, they're the legalists. We live by the law, for the law. It's all about the law. Whereas the Sadducees were the liberal group that believed there was no resurrection from the dead. And so their motto for life was make the most of your time now. Live it up now. They were all about social justice and making the world a better place. And their focus was on the here and now. So you have this, these Pharisees and these Sadducees who don't like each other, but they come together because ultimately they don't like Jesus more than they don't like their differences. And they come to Jesus, this Sanhedrin, and they ask him to give them a sign from heaven. It's interesting that they would ask for a sign from heaven because hasn't it been enough that Jesus has healed the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and anyone who would come and even touch the fringe of his garment could be healed. Isn't that sign enough? Wasn't it enough that he walked on water and fed thousands of people with a Lunchable? Isn't that a good enough sign? But yet they're still coming to Jesus saying, we need more. We need a sign from heaven. And so Jesus comes to them and says, you can discern weathered patterns. You can be meteorologist, but you can't see what is right in front of you. You can't see the signs of the time, which is not talking about a future event that is to come. The signs of the time are talking about Jesus. That you can't even see what is right in front of you. 
And so Jesus says, you're an evil and adulterous generation because you seek for a sign. But no sign's going to be given to you except the sign of Jonah. What, what is the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah was Jonah himself. Because if you think about Jonah, he offered no signs. Jonah did no miracles. He simply came and preached, repent. But Jonah himself was a sign because three days and nights in the great fish, after being three days and three nights in the great fish, he emerged to speak to Nineveh and demonstrate God's message to them. This is saying Jesus is the sign. His presence is the sign. And they're missing the sign that is right in front of them, the sign of Jonah. And so the Bible says, then Jesus departs from them. We've already talked a little bit about this. If you go back to Matthew chapter 12, the scribes come to Jesus and look at verse 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And listen to how Jesus responds, very similar to what we just read. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. It's right here. I am the sign. And yet the scribes and the Pharisees, and now the Sadducees join in. They're like, you got to do more. you got to show us more of a sign. And so Jesus says, no, the only sign I'm giving you is myself. If you can't see that, you're... You're, you're missing it. They uh, did, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. You go on to verses 5 through 12, and you find this warning against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it says this, when the disciples reached the other side, they'd forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus, in a conversation with them, in verse 6 says, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Leaven is a fermented substance that causes dough to rise. And it doesn't take much of it to affect the whole of the dough. And so Jesus says to them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I love the disciples' response in verse 7. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. So they hear Jesus say leaven, and they're thinking to themselves, that's where I don't remember getting any bread from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We don't, in fact, we don't have any bread. How are we going to move forward? But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? He's like, guys, you're missing the point, right? <laughs> that we're not talking here about literal physical bread, but Jesus goes on and says to them, don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets were gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered there? How is it that you fail to understand that I do not speak about bread? So Jesus is saying to them, I feel like you're missing what I've already done for you. Don't you think the fact that you don't have any bread that I can still take care of you? 
Don't you remember how I fed 5,000 and 4,000 people? And if we don't have any bread, obviously I can probably work that up and make some bread, right? And find some bread for us. So they were missing the point. I find comfort, to be honest with you, in the fact that the disciples were slow. That they were slow to come around to believe and to see it. That gives us hope in our journey, doesn't it? Yeah. I think if, if I was writing my story from my perspective, I probably would have taken these kind of stories out. Because it doesn't make the disciples look very good. Right? I would have just taken that out and just got to the point of what Peter said. But I love that Matthew was inspired by the Holy Spirit, by God, to write down what really happened. And that they were slow to see what Jesus was saying. So take heart today, church. If you're in this journey with the Lord, and it's like, sometimes I feel like it's just on repeat. And all of a sudden, it's like, okay, I get that, and then I'll forget. It's, listen, stay faithful. He will continue to be faithful to you. He'll continue to reveal himself to you. And so Jesus says to them, listen, I can provide for you, but I'm not really talking about bread in general. Look at what he says at the end of verse 11. He says, instead, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 12, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread. So he's not really talking about the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, our question should be, well, what is the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Because remember, these are polar opposites of as far as belief go. You have conservative legalism. You have liberalism over here. So really, if you put these guys together, their beliefs are a lot different than each other. So when Jesus says to them here, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the teaching of the Pharisees, what is he talking about? Well, I think D.A. Carson captures it in his commentary on the book of Matthew when he says, the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees that Jesus is referring to here is an attitude of unbelief toward divine revelation that could not perceive Jesus to be the Messiah. It is the teaching, the doctrine of unbelief that they couldn't see what was right in front of them. And even with the word, they couldn't see it through the, the word. Their unbelief was blinding them to who Jesus is. There was over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. They knew the Old Testament, and yet they couldn't see that the Old Testament was being fulfilled right in front of them. So the teaching is this unbelief toward Jesus, and they could come together. Even though their teachings were very different, the thing that they could come together on was their unbelief towards who Jesus is. Unbelief in our life blinds us to who Jesus is through his word. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. 
It is impossible to please God without faith, without this belief in him. And he warns the disciples against this unbelief, this unbelief that blinds them to who Jesus is through his word. Unbelief not only blinds you to who Jesus is, unbelief is characterized by never being enough. They keep asking for a sign. Then they come to Jesus and say, why do your disciples eat with unwashed hands? Not even the written law, but the oral tradition. Now they're coming and say, we still need a sign. Not just a sign, we need a sign from heaven. A characteristic of unbelief in your life is it will never be enough. You'll never come to the end of that where it's like, all right, now I have enough evidence, I have enough of sciences, I have enough knowledge that I can move into who Jesus is. No, it'll never be enough. We need to beware of this doctrine of unbelief, not trusting, not believing in the word of God. See, ultimately, unbelief comes down to pride in our lives. If you look at the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, their unbelief at the heart of it was pride. And it takes humility for us to admit that Jesus is who he says he is and that he has done what he has said he has done through his word and we believe in it. Church, guest, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Beware of unbelief that will creep into your heart and draw you away from who Jesus is. If you're struggling with unbelief, would I, can I encourage you to open the word of God and ask the Lord to open your eyes to see who he is. You don't need to watch another YouTube video. You don't need to listen to another podcast. You need to open the word of God and say, God, give me eyes to see who you are. We see the unbelief of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then we see Jesus warn them against the teachings, this unbelief towards the revelation of God. And then we come to verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do you say that the son of man is? Let me give you a little perspective of this Caesarea Philippi. This was a 30 mile journey from where the disciples and Jesus were. It seems as if they're only going there for this encounter that they're about to have with Jesus. Um, This was the key place of worship in this area of the world. It originally was a place of worship for the fertility god, Pan. Pan was half human, half goat-looking creature. This is where you, they get Peter Pan from. Then the Romans incorporated it into the place of false gods worship. And Herod the great son, Philip, 
was given this part of the land and he established it as the capital territory and named it Caesarea to honor the emperor of Rome. And Philip was his name. He was Herod the Philip. And so he named it after himself. It became a large and flourishing Roman city. And during the time of Christ, there were these five main areas of worship to false gods that took place here. So let's look at this picture together to give you a perspective of it. So this cave entrance was where water came from the Jordan River. Then you have this temple of Augustus here, a place of worship. Then you have this court of Pan that I just mentioned. Then they throw up a temple to Zeus just to be careful that they get everybody involved. So they throw in a temple to Zeus. Then you have this upper tomb temple and this lower tomb temple area, which are connected with the court of Pan. So basically, any god that you wanted to worship, you could come to Caesarea Philippi and worship this, these false gods. It was a worldwide gathering place for numerous false gods. Literally, it was considered the gate of the underworld or the gate of the Hades in, in that time. It was a sick cesspool of evil and represented the worst of Satan and sinful humanity that they could offer. So, Think of a place that you would never want to go because of false worship being there. This is this place. And this is where Jesus takes his disciples as he's about to have this field trip, this lesson with them about who he is. The disciples would have been uncomfortable to be in this place because it was so dark and it was so demonic. And in a room of multi-generations, I can't share with you the things that were happening here. But it was demonic and disgusting, the things that would go on here. And Jesus takes his disciples here, and they're standing in front of this Caesarea Philippi, all these false idols and false gods, and he asks them the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In verse 14, the disciples respond. They said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So the disciples just start listing. We've, we've heard of John the Baptist, right? Remember Herod? Antipas thought that when he beheaded John the Baptist, he thought Jesus was the resurrection of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was a hellfire and brimstone kind of preacher, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So they could see this in Jesus. The, the culture around them, they're saying maybe he's John the Baptist. Others were saying maybe he is Elijah. And Elijah was known for his power. Remember Elijah called down fire from heaven? Remember that encounter? And so he's known for his power. And they're seeing Jesus do these great works. And so it's like he has some kind of supernatural power. So some are saying that you are Elijah. Others were saying that he is Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And Jesus had compassion. Remember that? We, we keep hearing this word compassion. And Jeremiah was much that way. As he looked at the people, he had compassion on them. And it would cause him to weep. And I love the disciples because they're like, just in case we missed anybody, he's one of the prophets. Or one of the prophets, right? Like, we're not going to go through every one. But we'll throw in this little caveat of he's one of the prophets. We live in a world that has all kinds of views of Jesus. If we were to be asked who do people say that Jesus is? 
The Muslim would say that Jesus is a prophet and only a prophet, not the son of God, not God in the flesh. He's a prophet and a prophet that is inferior to Muhammad. And in the Quran, they would say Jesus was not crucified and Jesus did not rise from the dead. The Mormon believes that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer and that a council of gods determined that Jesus should be selected instead of Lucifer to be the redeemer for the world. And that when the council of gods chose Jesus over his spirit brother Lucifer, Lucifer threw a fit and rebelled. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was created as the archangel Michael. The Hindu believes that Jesus is simply one of many deities like Rama and Krishna and Buddha. The Buddhists believe that Jesus was just an enlightened man. There is a lot of views of Jesus in the world. But the next question Jesus asked is the ultimate question. It is the question that each one of us must grapple with. It is the question that will bring clarity to our lives. Look at what Jesus says in verse 15 to his disciples. He says then to them, you've heard what people think about me. Now I have a question for you. He says, but who do you say that I am? I hear what you've said about other people, but, but who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up for the crowd as he often does. He leads the way and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Can you see why this verse would be the capstone verse in the book of Matthew? Because what has Matthew been trying to prove to us and in his writings that Jesus is the king? And now we have finally come to this moment where Peter is seeing it clearly and he says, you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the king. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are not some philosophical idea. You are not a dictator seeking to control. You are not a prophet, an angel, a deity, or an enlightened man. You are the living son of God. And they got it. And this is what Matthew has been leading them to. This is the outlook that Matthew is wanting his audience to see that Jesus is the king. He is the Messiah. This statement is the central text to Matthew chapter 16. And everything else is tied to Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of the living God. So look at what verse 17 says. And Jesus answered Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That is his given name. Blessed are you. You got it, Peter. But then I love, because he knows Peter's heart, he says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He said, Peter, you didn't come to this conclusion on your own. Say that. 
It wasn't you hanging out with me for two and a half years and all of a sudden, boom, the light bulb came on. No, it was my father that revealed me to you. He knew Peter's heart and he knew the pride that Peter could say, look at the work that I've done. We finally got to this moment and here we are in front of all these false gods and I finally got it. And he says, no, Peter, it has been revealed to you by the Father. To go from unbelief to belief is the Lord's work in our life. It is the Father revealing himself to us. It is why the author of Hebrews would say in Hebrews 12 too, that Jesus is the founder, the initiator, and the perfecter of our faith. It is his work in our lives. It's why Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It only comes through the Father revealing himself to us. And he wanted Peter in this moment to know when you made this confession that I am the Messiah, the son of the living God. It was not you working it up inside of you. It was my father revealing it to you. Then in verse 18, he says, and I tell you, you are Peter. Gives him a new name, Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus declares that he is going to use Peter to advance his mission, namely the spread of the confession that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus is going to build his church and he's gonna use Peter to be a part of that building. And I love that he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Picture the place that Jesus is standing. The gates of hell are literally right behind him. And he says, you see this false gods, this debauchery behind me, the gates of hell won't stop. Here's the idea, the advance of the gospel. Because why are gates put up? They're not offensive Gates are defensive, right? Gates keep the enemy from coming in. And he's saying to them, listen, men, the gates of hell will not stop the advancement of the confession that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. Then in verse 19, Peter says, I will give, or Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. If you have the keys to something, you have authority and responsibility. If you have the keys to your house, that gives you a sense of authority but also responsibility with the house. The keys of the kingdom in this context The keys of the kingdom is the gospel message because it takes us back to Peter's confession. What is Peter's confession? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So the keys of the kingdom, the authority and responsibility that Jesus is giving to Peter and he's giving to all who will come after Peter is 
the ability, the responsibility, and the authority to take the message of the church, which is what? The confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Peter would get the privilege of opening the door of faith to the Jews at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, and to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. God would also give the keys to the other apostles who shared in this authority. And Paul had the privilege of opening the door of faith to the Gentiles outside of Palestine. So these keys of the kingdom is the message of Jesus. It's the message of the gospel. And then it uses this term, the binding and loosing. What does that have to do? What does the binding and loosing have to do with people's, it has to do with people's response to the message of Jesus, the gospel. This is not about a person having the ability to bind certain objects on earth or to take care of certain demons here on earth. That's not what this message is talking about. This message is about people's response to the gospel. So here's the deal. I can confidently say to you today that if you turn from your sin and believe in Jesus, you will spend an eternity in heaven. I can say that to you with confidence that is bound on earth as it is bound in heaven. I can also say to you with the same truth, with the heart of compassion, if you do not turn from your sin and believe in Jesus, you will spend an eternity in hell. This is loosing what is on earth as well as in heaven. This binding and loosening happens in heaven as well as on earth. My authority to say this does not come from me. It comes from the word of God. Whenever Peter or the apostles, or the disciples, or we proclaim the message of Jesus. We are doing it under the authority of Christ because it is based on the word of God. Therefore, we are binding and loosing through the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Church history has butchered this text, specifically Catholicism, which claims that Peter was given special authority that is now passed down to a succession of church leaders, specifically bishops under the primacy of the Pope, Peter being the first Pope. I would propose to you today that that is an error in their belief and it is seen in the fact that Jesus does not give Peter any special authority. In fact, in just a few sentences, he's going to call Peter Satan because as he is predicting his Death, burial, and resurrection, Peter's like, this ain't the plan. And he's going to say, get behind me, Satan. Peter's authority comes through Jesus, through the Father, based off the confession that Jesus is the Messiah. He's not giving a special extra benefit in the church. Also, Jesus says that he will build the church, not Peter. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus will build his church. Jesus uses different metaphors when talking about the part he plays in the church as well as others. So some will take this text and they try to break it down with Peter as a small rock and he says on this rock and that's a bigger rock, right? And you can picture the scene that we just saw of a little rock versus a big rock and so that's deciphering that out. I don't know that you need to do that to understand that Jesus uses different metaphors when he's talking about people's involvement and his work in the church. Think about this. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul is known as the expert builder of the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11, Jesus is the church's foundation. Yet in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church, and Jesus is the cornerstone. Here, Peter has the keys, but if you go to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18, and Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7, Jesus has the keys. In John chapter 9 and verse 5, Jesus is the light of the world. And in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14, we are told that we are the light of the world. Here's the point I am making. Everything hangs on Matthew 16 and verse 16. Peter's confession of who Jesus is. And the verses that follow tie back to that verse. So if you pull this verse 18 and 19 out of its context, it can lead you away from Christ rather than towards Christ. Because Peter's confession is you are the Christ the son of the living God. Verse 20, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. What an odd way to finish their time in Caesarea Philippi. That Jesus would say, all right, here we are in front of all these false gods. You've rightly confessed me to be Jesus. Now don't tell anybody about that. Why would Jesus do that? Well, his time hasn't come yet, right? He is the Messiah, yes, but he's about to begin, and we'll find this as he begins to predict his death, burial, and resurrection. That's a part of God's plan for Jesus' life, and so he has to stay focused on the plan. So it's like, this is not a time for us to, quote, evangelize. This is a time for us to stay focused on what I have come for, and I have come to give my life for the sins of the world so that many could hear the gospel message. This text today leads us to this question. Who do you say that I am? There's not a more important question in your life. Who do you Nine o'clock crowd. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say? Is Jesus just another God? Is Jesus just another prophet? And an inferior one to that? Is Jesus just a good man who did a lot of good things? And his life is one worth emulating because he was such a good man? Or is Jesus... The Messiah. the Messiah is Jesus, the Son of the Living God. Yes, he is. Who do you say that Jesus is? This is the ultimate question of your life. And my prayer is for the person in this room that doesn't see Jesus for who he is, that Jesus would open the eyes of your heart to see that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God 
And I would call you to declare what Peter declared in Matthew 16, that you are the one that I have been waiting for. You are my Savior. And I would invite you right where you're sitting right now to declare in your heart who Jesus is. That he is the Son of God. And for those of us who have believed that, may it give us confidence to continue to push back the darkness. Why? Because we're on the offense. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not stop us. So let's with confidence go into our neighborhoods, into our schools, into our workplaces and say, do you know who Jesus is? I'd like to tell you because he's made a big difference in my life. Father, thank you for the view that you give us from Matthew chapter 16 where all that we've been studying through 15 chapters has led us to this moment of confession of Peter that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And my prayer, Lord, is that if anyone in this room does not believe that, that today as you revealed yourself to Peter in that moment, that you would reveal yourself to them, that the scales on their eyes would fall off in this moment and they would see you for who you are. And that today they would go from death to life. They would go from unbelief to belief. That they would respond opposite of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that they would respond in belief to you, that they would be like the Canaanite woman who had great faith because she believed in your word that you could heal. And for those of us that believe, believe this, give us confidence as we go into the darkness this week. Help us to move forward with confidence because you're building your church as you used Peter to confess that you are the Christ the son of the living God as you gave Peter the keys and the uh, disciples the keys to the kingdom of heaven this opportunity to share the good news so you've given us and may we not shirk our responsibility to share the hope of Jesus Christ but may with confidence know that you are building your church and nothing will stop it in Jesus Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to AntiochBBC.org. That's AntiochBBC.org. God's best to you.